who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Max Quick, Book Two, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. The sequel to Max Quick, Book One, The Pocket and the Pendant, produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on the Max Quick series or this podcast, please visit www.maxquickseries.com. Two, the Whispering Stone. What the hell is Enki doing hanging out in the Food Universe parking lot? Max asked. Ian looked up. I think he was looking for you, Max. Max got up and walked around the table. The real Enki had been missing for some time now. All Max knew for sure was that when Anu, Lord of Nibiru, had died, Enki was next in line for the throne. Except nobody knew where Enki was. Until now. Me? But why? Max asked. Was he trying to warn me about something? Could Jadith have escaped somehow? Sasha asked. I don't know. Anki didn't seem to be right in the head. He was kind of messed up. Anki, Max breathed. The real Anki. You mean to tell me everyone's been looking for him, and this whole time he's been hanging out homeless at the food universe? Did he give you a warning? Casey asked. Max shook his head, avoiding her gaze. No, he didn't say anything, really. I have a theory, Ian said. Something has evidently scrambled Enki's noodle, but some part of him felt compelled to try and find Max anyway. Unfortunately, not enough of his noodle was actually working to spit out whatever it was he wanted to say. But I do have one clue as to why he was there. Serpent and mermaid kids around the country are disappearing. They all took this news with a flush of ice in their veins. Sasha shifted uncomfortably in her chair. Disappearing? After all, she'd been a serp once with Ian. And if someone was coming after the serps, well then anything was possible. See, there's an email group that a lot of the serp kids are on, Ian continued. We all keep in touch online. Most of the posts are about how to deal with the things that only we would encounter. Like 
How do you explain your tattoo to people? What did you tell your parents? You know, stuff like that. Max nodded appreciatively. Yeah, I know that list. That's how I found Rafe. We talked about some of the colleges we're both looking at. The others nodded. Rafe Finnegan had been the red-haired kid Max had sent careening into garbage cans during the initial chase with the Serps. They'd since become friends. Ian continued. Anyway, there was a buzz on the list about a month ago about how some of the Serp kids were missing. They went to school one morning and just never came home. And over the last two weeks, other Serps have been getting phone calls and visits from like these government guys. I don't like the sound of that, Casey said. Me either, Max echoed. Well, now they've begun detaining kids. Their parents are going berserk. Max seethed at this news. And today, just before the party, one of the Serp kids showed up in an IRC channel. We had a very quick conversation. He was pressed for time, but I printed out a log. Ian handed printouts to all of them. The transcript showed a conversation between Ian and somebody named Serpboy23. The conversation went like this. Who is this? This is Carl Daniels. Oh, hey, how you doing? Not too good. I just got dragged off by these FBI guys and questioned for like ten hours. What? Why? What did you do? Nothing. Ian, they know about the time stop and the Serps. You're kidding. Nope, not. Where are you right now? Definitely not going to say on IRC. You need help from Max? Nothing he can do, but that's actually not why I'm IRCing with you. Oh? They're asking about Max and Casey. Really? Like what? Asked where they lived. Somebody talked. Another Serp. They already knew about Starland. Ian, listen. They want Max dead. Dead? Overheard them talking. Think they're friends of Jadith. I saw gold armor. Oh, dude, be careful. IRC me if you need anything. We'll warn Max and Casey. Will do. Gotta go. Thanks. Max looked up when he'd finished reading. They want me dead? Well, this isn't just FBI, Ian said. This is something more. Remember, Carl says that the FBI is working with Nuberians, which means they're probably not even FBI at all. They're probably Nuberians with freelance humans working together. But where did these Nuberians come from? Max asked. There shouldn't be any on Earth right now. Obviously, Jadith escaped, Sasha said. Or this is a new bunch of disgruntled from Nibiru. Either way, they're coming. Casey said in a thin voice. They know we're in Starland, and they're coming for us. So, wait, Max said. Assuming this is not Jadith for a second, and I hope to hell it's not, and she's still trapped in that book, why now? I mean, if they wanted me dead, why did they wait five years to come looking for me? Maybe they didn't know about you until recently. After Jadith mysteriously vanished, maybe some snaky allies of hers on Nibiru snuck back to Earth and started sniffing around. You know, trying to figure out what went wrong. Then they find out about the Serps. It wouldn't have been hard. After all, there was that bloody newspaper article about all the weird stuff in Caledonia Springs on April 8th, and Planet Furious yapping on the telly. 
Anyone who knows what we do would put two and two together. So they go poke around and, hey, look at this. Kids with sunbolts. What do you know? So they grab a few, question them, build up a roster of exactly who was in this little gang. And then confusion. None of these kids seems to know anything about how Jadith was taken out. Because the kid they're looking for isn't in the bunch. None of the kids ever mention your name when questioned for a very simple reason. Because you and Casey were never in the Serps. Remember? You only showed up for a day and a half. Most of the Serp kids probably don't even remember you. Max nodded, catching on. But then something happened in the past few weeks. These Nuberians did another round of questioning. I don't know, trying different angles or something. And they discovered that two kids passed through the town. Two kids they didn't know anything about before now. Me and Casey. Casey nodded, finishing the thought. So they start scooping up more serps, questioning the hell out of them. Pretty soon, one of them remembers the name of the town we said we were from. Starland. Max instantly felt helpless. He wanted to protect Casey, but he didn't know how. And he didn't like the idea of Nuberian showing up and grabbing her. Maybe they'd even kill her, too, just to make sure they'd gotten the right person. The very thought made him cringe. Crap on a stick, Max muttered. I had to mention Starlin to Ace, right in front of everyone. He paused, annoyed with himself for a moment, and then asked, But why are they looking for me? Revenge for Jadith, is that it? Ian nodded. Maybe. But I think there's more to it than that. I think this is about your secret. They think you didn't Jadith by yourself. And if they want to make another attempt on the planet, they're going to have to get you out of the way first. They figure you're too much of a threat. And that, my friend, is what I think Enki was doing in the Food Universe parking lot. He was there to warn you. Max sat deep in thought. His secret. His parents. It was all the things he didn't know about himself coming to haunt him, just as he'd always feared they would. He didn't know what the secret was, but in the past... Whenever he'd discovered it, he would be so horrified that he would have Mr. E erase all memory of it and reinsert him into the human world with no knowledge of his true identity or this secret. But what could be so terrible? What would make the other Nuberians fear him so much? And if it was some sort of power, why would he keep hiding it from himself? Wouldn't it be useful? What was he so afraid of? Casey had always been annoyed with this obsession of his. She'd tell him he was brooding, that he needed to lighten up. And he'd always told her that she didn't understand. She knew who her parents were. She didn't have some secret hanging around her neck. But she would only get angry at him. After all, her father was Johnny Siren, and her mother became furious with her every time she talked about him or the pocket. Nevertheless, Max wanted to scream at Casey, I told you so! But he held himself in check. She was in danger now because of him. If I do have some power we can use against them, Max growled, it's just become a whole lot more urgent that I find out what it is. Hold that thought. I've got more to show you, Ian said, frenetically whirring his finger around over the mouse pad. One of the other things I've been up to, thanks to Maximilian's basically unlimited debit card, is looking for signs of Max in the past. Don't call me Maximilian's, Max muttered, annoyed. Ian ignored him. I've got a server farm running pattern recognition software. It's sifting through old photos and documents. And it's turned up some rather interesting items. 
What have you been searching for exactly? Casey asked. Oh, names and faces we all know and love, Ian replied. For example, Ian clicked a few keys and suddenly Max, a 12-year-old Max, appeared in a dusty old black and white photograph. This is a zoom-in of a crowd in New York City sometime around 1916. Ian clicked another button and the picture zoomed out, revealing that Max was only one person and perhaps 300 in the photograph. Wow, Casey said, impressed. That thing works pretty good. And then there's always... Another few key clicks and suddenly a scowling Johnny Siren appeared. He was leaning against a car sometime in the 1930s. Casey felt her heart dance in her ribcage. After all, she was looking at a picture of her own dead father. Sorry about that, Case. Ian apologized, suddenly realizing what he'd done. I didn't mean to shock you. Casey shook her head to indicate that she was all right. Anyway, let me get to the good stuff, Ian continued. I've got to warn you, though, this is where it gets a little trippy. Ian tapped the keys and spun the mouse, and suddenly Casey and Sasha gasped. For unmistakably, they were looking at another century-old picture of Max, but not a 12-year-old Max. Rather, this was a picture of Max as he looked now, today, a young man of 17. His hair was the same, long and ragged, but he was wearing a top hat and dressed every bit the part of a gentleman of the times. Ian let this sink in and smiled. Now, ladies, you haven't got the real shocker yet. This wasn't the shocking part? Get ready. Here it comes. Ian zoomed the view out. Seated next to Max in an open-air, horse-drawn carriage was Ian. Ta-da! Ian sang. That's you! Sasha gasped at Ian. Hey, did you two take a trip through the pyramid you didn't tell us about? Casey asked. Ian shook his head. No, that's just it. We haven't. Yet. But we will take a trip. Back to when this picture was taken. 1912. Hey, you never showed this to me before, Max said. That's because the software only found it in this past week, Ian replied, miffed that Max doubted him. And anyway, I wanted to wait until after the party. He snuck a guilty sideways glance at Casey. Ah, so that was it. Ian didn't want him brooding. So what, we go back? Max asked. Ian nodded. Why? We do because we do? Because the tyranny of that picture is absolute? Your parents. Your secret, Casey said with a hint of annoyance. Partly, Ian said. One thought I had is that maybe your younger self knows more about your secret than you do, Max. <laughs> you might even catch yourself in between disc wipes. But there's something else. Ian tapped the keys again, and a renaissance-looking drawing appeared. It showed a mechanical device of some kind, meticulously drawn to exacting specifications with dark brown ink on large parchment. Casey was reminded instantly of the style of the Vitruvius Man by Leonardo da Vinci. But this picture was incomplete. It was evidently a shred of a larger document. It was torn around the edges. What's this? Sasha asked. You're looking at something called the Nibaroni Machine, Ian said. The what? Casey asked. The Nibaroni Machine, Case, Ian replied coyly. This document fragment was found in the estate of a certain Giuseppe di Serranus of Florence in a collection dating back to the 1500s. Casey's jaw dropped. Giuseppe de Serranus? Could that possibly be... Johnny Siren? 
Yes, one and the same, Ian confirmed. Your father was born in Italy during the Renaissance, it seems. He's a bit mm, older than we had originally guessed. And if you're thinking the Nibironi machine has more to do with Nuberians than with macaroni, you're correct. If you look at this right here, hang on, let me blow this up a bit. Ian enlarged a certain part of the diagram. You'll see something that you can't read, but I can. And that's because it's written in Nuberian, or Sumerian if you'd rather. What is this thing supposed to do? Sasha asked. Dunno, Ian replied. Haven't been able to figure that out yet. However, it looks like someone actually tried to build it in 1912. The same year that Max and I seem to be hanging around in New York. Surprise, surprise. Who tried to build it? Casey asked. Siren? Not exactly, Ian replied, tapping more keys. A page appeared filled with scrawled tiny handwriting. Next item. This is the diary of a supposed madman. His name was Rudolf Kern. He lived from 1882 to 1934. He was schizophrenic, but his illness seems to have allowed him to see things people around him could not. He speaks at length about this Nibaroni machine and how there is a nest of Nuberians, strange beings from another world whose comings and goings are seemingly invisible to all but himself living in New York and the building the machine. Suffice to say, his ravings have a lot of other interesting things that we would all recognize. Enough such that I consider his story to be the genuine article. There were Nuberians in New York back then? Sasha exclaimed. What, were they ever not here? Ian nodded. If you believe Kern, and I do, yes. There were Nuberians in 1912 New York. But what's the purpose of this machine? Max asked, staring at the drawing. Why were they building it? Ian shrugged. Yeah, probably some device to take over the planet, just like Jadith. Casey snorted. No surprise there. Anyway, we don't know whether they actually finished it, Ian concluded. And we don't know what happened to the Nuberians in New York. There's no record of either. But we don't seem to be living under Nuberian control today, so it probably didn't work out like they planned. Is my father, you know, Siren, helping them to build it? Casey asked. Ian shrugged. I don't know, but like I said, that drawing was found in old Giuseppe's things. Odds are good. Casey nodded. What took them so long, she asked. If they had to design in the 1500s, why wait until 1912? Ian shrugged. No clue, that, that doesn't make much sense to me either. But there it is. You should go after Anki, Max said to Casey. Don't try to protect me from Siren, Casey shot back. I know he's not the same guy back then. That's not what I meant, Max replied. Somebody has to go chase down Enki, find out what's wrong with him, protect him. You're not in the photograph, the one of me and Ian in the carriage. So that means you don't go with us. So you and Sasha, you should go after Enki. Casey opened her mouth and then closed it, unsure of how to respond. But Sasha nodded. I agree. Ian looked up in protest. No, definitely don't agree. We should stick together. We'll go back to 1912, and then... Sasha shook her head, smiling. She cuddled up to Ian. We'll be fine, sweetie. Casey and I can take care of ourselves. Ian looked up helplessly at Max. He didn't like this plan. But I do think we should stick together for now, Max said. Domitian's got room set up for everyone. Any objections? I was going to stay anyway, Sasha said. Casey blew air through her lips, a little exasperated. 
I'll call my mom, but yeah, I guess I'd rather be with you guys right now. And we should leave as soon as possible, Max said, you know, for 1912, for The sooner I know about my secret, well, maybe then we'll have some options. Later that night, after everyone was in bed, Max snuck down to his study. He'd been reluctant to try this, despite his curiosity about his secret. But now, things were different. Now there was an urgency there hadn't been before. He opened the safe. He reached in and carefully withdrew the whispering stone. It was the same one Johnny Siren had used. After the pocket, Max had bought it from the Starland Museum of Antiquities. He set the ancient Nuberian device down on the mahogany desk and stared at it for a long moment. Who was he trying to call? He didn't even know. And the last time someone had dialed randomly on this thing, Jadith had picked up on the other end. But there had to be allies on Nibiru. Maybe Abdiel or someone. Someone who could tell him about his secret. Someone who could help him protect Casey. Max leaned forward and touched the ball with his hand. Instantly, the Whispering Stone became a blazing miniature sun on the table. White light howled out of it, scorching the room. Max dropped his mind into the stone, seeking some way to complete the connection. At once, he felt his awareness plunging through the ball, smoothly whipping through wormholes. The Niberian phone system was working, it was connecting him. He sensed Nibiru itself approaching, a shiny golden ball ringed like Saturn. He saw it as clearly as if he were physically floating above it. Now, he could feel other whispering stones far, far down in the world below. He had the singularly powerful sense that he could connect with any of them with just a thought. But then there was a violent wrench, like a train jumping the track. It jarred Max physically, his teeth lurched in his skull. Without warning, Nibiru zipped away, dwindled to nothing in an instant. No! The whispering stone was attacking him. Something was diverting his phone call, intercepting him, connecting him somewhere else against his will. Max was immediately reminded of the singular eye. He tried to wrench his hand free of the Whispering Stone, but it was locked and clenched and would not move. A paralysis gripped him. Max strained to focus. He was surrounded by swirling light and music, tinkling bells. Everything was a washy blur. It was Christmas morning or a fairyland, but out of focus, a spangled kaleidoscope. The bells were ringing almost in alarm, as if he had kicked over a hive of pixies. Then he was descending rapidly through pillowy cherubic clouds. He was gently set down, and his vision cleared and snapped into focus at once. He was surprised to find himself outside, somewhere deep in a forest. There was a moonlit terrace under milky starlight directly in front of him. He was amidst decrepit ruins, crumbling moss-covered stone columns. Something from a dead empire eons ago. He looked down. He had a body. He seemed to be physically present, even though he knew this had to be an illusion. He was really still in the study of his own house. And then, Max became aware of figures dancing and cavorting under the silvery, watery light. Their laughter tinkled and echoed across the piazza as they waltzed and spun, sneaking sly glances at this young man in jeans and a t-shirt and motorcycle boots, incongruous and inappropriately dressed. Their elegant attire of tinsel and lace spun dizzyingly as they danced, decadent aristocrats of another epoch. 
They were young, but old. Max couldn't figure what he meant better than that. They looked young on the surface, but something about them screamed immense age. Like they've all had repeated plastic surgery, Max suddenly thought. Max moved in their midst, walking towards a kind of stage in the front. There was a long table of food and drink, and the smell of roasted flesh and wine was everywhere. At the front, at the table of honor, were several old men in white wigs. They were arranged in a way that indicated their rank clearly. And at the center of the table, raised high up on a throne, was an ornate gold box. Come closer, boy, one of the men beckoned. Max panted. Who were these people? Newburians? Max took in these strange, white-wigged old men. They looked like English judges or barristers. Many of them were overweight, some horribly so. Fat engulfed their forms. One eyed Max keenly, while his oversized red tongue suddenly popped out of his mouth, startling Max. The glistening mouth muscle seemed too big for his head. It folded, and slobber rolled along its length, until just as suddenly he pulled it back into the depth of his prodigious head again and blinked with no apology for the display. Max approached the stage. He counted nine of them. We're imbibing, one of the particularly fat ones half belched at him. What's that? Max asked. Drinking, another explained. Would you care to join us? Have a drink, you mean? Max asked. Yes, here. The man poured a deep red wine from a silver decanter into a glass and handed it to Max. Max jumped as his hand touched the glass. There was something shocking, ugly about it, but he couldn't tell what it was. The nine old men watched him with anticipation. Max raised the glass to his mouth, half wondering whether they were poisoning him. But then it occurred to Max, he wasn't even really physically here. He was in some dreamscape, a mental link created by the Whispering Stone. There wasn't any way these, these things could harm his actual body, and he needed answers. Max took a very, very tiny sip. The instant the liquid touched his lips, a violent retching gripped him. The substance was like concentrated sadness, distilled hatred, pure fear squeezed into a physical liquid. He dropped the glass and spat the drop out with all his might. His body strained to eject every trace of the wine. The glass shattered into jagged pebbles at his feet, but Max barely noticed. All he could think about was that he had to get every molecule of this repulsive substance out of his mouth right now. It was worse than poison. He had a sudden irrational fear that the taste, oh, the awful, horrid taste, would forever stain his palate, leave an indelible mark that could never be erased. That it was so potent that it would linger on his tongue for the rest of his life. And that thought was beyond intolerable. The nine old men howled and laughed uncontrollably. Their faces were red from the effort of it, and their eyes full of tears. They found Max's revulsion incredibly funny. Max struggled not to vomit as they all raised their glasses in unison and drank deeply. Max could now see some new aspect of the wine they drank, like his senses had become enhanced to pick up extra dimensions. He was now aware of particles swirling in the drink, and each one was a moment of pain or hatred. 
There were the screams of a mother who had just lost her baby to fever. The horror of a boy quietly enduring the unending beatings from his drunken father. There, the loneliness of a man condemned to spend his life in a prison cell. And there, the fear of a soldier about to die in a war somewhere. They were actually drinking these horrible things. Their beefy faces drowned in rapture as they did so. Their eyes rolled back into their heads, savoring their pure, dreamy deliciousness. It was like an inversion of the Isle of the Dreamtime. It had the same eldritch sharpness, the same palpable depth. Only here, everything was awful. Who were these people? What were they? Suddenly, there was a voice from the ornate gold box set on the throne. Don't worry, Max. It is an acquired taste. It takes some getting used to. But once you do, oh, once you do, you won't ever want anything else ever again. Who are you? Max rasped, the dot of horror still stinging his tongue deeply. Ah, that is the question. But now I will not answer it. I will not show you my true form. That is why I stay inside my box. For if I were to show you, it would drive you mad. The voice paused dramatically and said, Like it did, Anki. At that, Max perked up. You did that to Anki? Oh no, he did that to himself. He wanted a little peek at the wizard behind the curtain. He wanted to see what was in the box. Oops, guess that was a bad idea. What about you? What if I offered to open the box and show you what I really look like? Max shook his head, the taste of the wine polluting his mouth. He certainly wasn't about to attempt something Anki couldn't handle. Huh. Smart boy. I didn't think so. What are you? Max asked. Ah, we can help you with that, one of the old men said. And all nine of them morphed into black crows where they sat. Boo! They all cawed in unison. One pecked at his wine with a black beak, slurping down a couple drops. You're archons! Max shouted in terror and stumbled backwards down the stairs. They laughed and became old men again. Oh, that's a good one! One said to the others. Oh, that was rich! Did you see his face? Did you feel that hot gush of terror from him? Too bad that will only work once. The sound of laughter filled the piazza. You got that right, Max said, his anger rising. This conversation is over. I don't talk to Archons. Archons were enemies of Anki. That was all Max needed to know. But you don't even know what we are, the voice in the box protested. And you're going to want to hear what we have to say, no matter what you may think of us. Max stared hard at the nine old men. Talk, he spat. We are rather impressed with you, and that is not an easy thing to do. We'd like to offer you a seat at our table. A position with the corporation, if you will. Then the scene changed, washed into a new scene. The golden box was now standing in front of a tall glass building. There was a sign on top of the building that read, The Prism Corporation. The other men were now wearing suits and talking furiously on cell phones in a small patch of grass in the background. This is a fine position, one that could grow into a seat on the board, the man in the box continued. You could be a real mover and shaker in our ranks. You'd have a lot of power, you know, 
This is a generous offer. One we didn't even offer Hanky. He lacked the mm, qualifications. What do you think? You could start right away. Max didn't even need a moment. What are you kidding? Forget it, he replied. The man sounded crestfallen. Ah, well, that is disappointing. Disappointing indeed. You know, my colleagues predicted that's what you'd say. But do you know what? I argued for you. I want to bat for you. And this is how you repay me. I don't owe you anything, Max growled. The answer's no. Whatever you're up to, no. You'll help us, you know. Whether you want to or not, you will. The man said with a wicked smile on his face. We always get our way in the end. No. I'll fight you, Max replied evenly. Enki fights you, whatever you things are, and that's enough for me. You're on your way back to 1912, aren't you? Yes. Max stood stunned. How had the Archons found that out? The man continued. The machine. You won't stop it, you know. It has a terrible purpose, and it will be accomplished. Max gritted his teeth. It'll be stopped. It was stopped. There's no record of it in history. That's because we rip it to pieces. The man laughed. Well then, I guess you will not see reason. This interview is concluded. Max felt himself falling and heard the swirl of bells around him again. And then he was back in his study. The whispering stone was dull and dead as midnight. What the hell had that been all about? The attack came later that evening. Domitian shook Max awake with a hand clamped over his mouth. It's begun, was all he whispered. It took a moment for this information to penetrate Max's sleep-numb mind, but when it did, he quickly got out of bed and slipped on his motorcycle boots. He was already in his jeans and t-shirt, but he threw on a checked flannel shirt for good measure. Domitian motioned out the window into the yard. Three men in dark windbreakers were approaching the house at a light jog, weapons drawn. They scanned the area alertly, but it was clear they believed they hadn't been spotted yet. Max caught a glint of gold plating in the dull moonlight. At least one of them was wearing the telltale lightweight cloth metal centurion armor beneath his clothes. Nubarians. Max lurched in alarm, but Domitian already knew what he was thinking and restrained him. Relax. The others are already in the tunnel. You were the last one I woke, per your instructions. Max nodded his mute thanks, and the two of them quietly slipped down the stairs. From the kitchen, they slid back the false cupboard panel and entered the dark, moist cellar below, bolting the door behind them. Ian stood nearby with a flashlight. Casey and Sasha each wore jeans and sweatshirts. Casey in her red Starland High hoodie. Suddenly, Casey's cell phone rang. She glanced at it. It's my mom, she muttered and went to answer it, but Max grabbed her hand. No, you can't. It's my mom, Max, Casey gritted in annoyance. It might not be your mom. They may have been to your house already. Max is right, Domitian said. Turn it off now. They can locate us by your cell phone signal. Casey looked up in alarm and quickly snapped the phone shut and powered it down. Then Ian snatched the phone from her hand and removed the battery. Hey, Casey protested. I turned it off. 
It gives off a residual signal even when it's off, Ian explained. Sorry. Then they were all startled by a giant crash above them. A few moments later, they heard the sound of footsteps and yelling. Let's go, Max hissed. The tunnel, constructed by Domitian in preparation for just such an event, led for half a mile under the house to a cement hatch out in the woods beyond Max's property. The five of them emerged amidst the shadowed trees on a well-covered hill overlooking the house. This, again, had been a strategic decision by Domitian. His military mind was always considering the terrain. The lights of Max's house were all on now. A swarm of figures moved around inside. A dark van was parked aggressively on the front lawn. A mounted spotlight swept the yard in immediate vicinity. If this is a trick to get back together, you've certainly gone to a lot of effort. Casey whispered sardonically to Max. Oh, so we're speaking again? Max said. Casey let a puff of air out, blowing a blonde strand from her face. Oh, well, that figures. We only talk when Nubarians are chasing us. Never mind, Casey hissed. I was just making a joke. So was I, Max retorted. No, you weren't. You were making an editorial comment. You always have to make... Shut up, you two! Ian rasped. This way, Domitian signaled. I have a jeep hidden over here. As they cleared a pile of brush and a weather-beaten tarp off the vehicle in the dark, they were startled by a loud bang. Max turned and saw a bright burst of orange light up the sky. They were setting his house on fire. My house, Max said. They're burning down my house. Your house was gone the minute they stepped through the front door, Domitian said calmly. Max wrenched towards him with panic in his eyes. What? Oh yes, Domitian continued. You couldn't go back even if they'd left it alone. And your credit cards, your bank accounts, you can no longer use them either. Domitian held his hand out. Your wallet, please, just so you won't be tempted. Max looked at Domitian like he'd gone insane. He pointed back to the inferno that had been his home. But they just burned down. I know, Max. Our friend entrusted your well-being to me. and It is worth quite a bit more than your house or your money, both of which have now become a liability. Your wallet, please. Now. Max saw that Domitian meant business. Sighing, he handed his wallet over and turned to Ian. Well, at least I don't have to listen to you call me Maximilians anymore. Ian was in shock. He didn't know what to say. Domitian turned to the rest of them. Now, the rest of you also. Wallets, please. And cell phones. And Ian, if you have anything else that buzzes, whirs, ticks, or in any way does anything, hand that over also. Now it was their turn to feel stripped of their resources. Grumpily, they emptied their pockets. In the space of a single heartbeat, they had all been ripped from the grid. And that, as they say, was that. The jeep bounced along a dirt path for nearly a mile, and then pulled onto Starlin's outskirts. Take us to the food universe, Max said quietly to Domitian. We're leaving. Now. The old man nodded. Yes, I figured as much. Ian, under your seat you'll find a bag with some clothes in it. I packed some things for you and Max for 1912. It's not exactly period, but at least these clothes will be a lot less noticeable than your jeans and Planet Furious t-shirt. Ian pulled out two pairs of dark trousers, thick button-down shirts, and dark wool coats. There were also two pairs of leather boots. Ian nodded. These things were not perfect, but they were certainly better than what they were wearing right now. 
Casey and Sasha, I regret I don't have a similar package for you, but I'm not sure where you're headed, Domitian said. Ian showed me the video he pulled down, Sasha said. The arch Anki went through looks like a beach, you know, tropical. In that case, jeans and sturdy boots may very well be the best thing for you both. I have sneakers on, Casey said. Do you have... Under your seat, Casey, Domitian said, smiling. Casey pulled out a pair of beige hiking boots. They were tough, with steel toes and perfectly her size. She smiled. Dom, you rock. Mac shifted uncomfortably in his seat. It had been a long time since he had rocked. Domitian pulled into the parking lot. Food Universe was open 24 hours a day, but it was nearly 5 a.m., and there were only a few shoppers about at this time. Casey and Sasha jumped out of the jeep first. Casey also had the knack for finding arches, as Max did. She pushed the dumpster out of the way and began searching for it, but Sasha tied up the rope. Max turned to Domitian. Thanks, Max said. Domitian nodded and smiled. Good luck to both of you. You gonna be alright? Max asked. Domitian nodded and smiled. Me? Ah, of course. He said dismissively. You don't have any way to find Mr. E, do you? Ian asked quietly. But I never have. He contacts me when he feels it's necessary, Domitian replied. And it doesn't bother you that he hasn't contacted you recently, Ian said. Domitian suddenly looked a bit uncomfortable. I confess, I don't know why he hasn't, but our friend must have his reasons. He always does. Max looked towards the dumpster. Casey and Sasha were already through the arch. The rope was pulled taut, terminating in solid cement wall. Look, Casey and Sasha didn't waste any time, Max said with a small smile. We had to change up and get after them. Ian threw Max's change of clothes and they both quickly put them on. But when they had finished, Ian shouted out a cry of alarm. A black van, very much like the one that had been parked in Max's yard, was bearing down on them from across the parking lot. It sped up aggressively as it spotted the jeep. Get out! Domitian commanded, practically shoving Max through the door. Through the arch! Now! As soon as their feet touched the pavement, Domitian gunned the engine and turned the jeep towards the black van, accelerating to full speed. Come on! He yelled at the paralyzed Ian. They sprinted for the arch. It was perhaps 50 feet away. Gunfire erupted around them. Max saw one bullet splat against the cement wall on a puff of white dust. Another hit the rope, blasting it to bits. The rope! The dumpster rolled away with frayed rope strands twirling like a pinwheel. They had no way to lower themselves down now. It was a good 40-foot drop. They'd break their legs. Here, Ian shouted. Max turned. Ian was running with a shopping cart. Get in! But I... Shut up and get in, Ian howled. Max obeyed, suddenly understanding. Ian pushed and ran, his face red and strained. He was sprinting with all his might. Ian kept his gaze pinned to the exact spot the rope had just snapped away from. He prayed he had it right. At the last second, Ian jumped into the shopping cart with Max, and they both barreled through the arch with bullets spraying the pavement behind them. On the other side, they fell straight down. Both curled up tight into a ball inside the metal cage around them. They landed with a cracking thud, spilling them from the cart and sending them tumbling along the floor of the Pyramid of the Arches. Sasha screamed in alarm. The cart clanged away noisily. Amazingly, it only seemed banged up a bit, but not badly damaged. Ian stirred first. He got up to his knees. Ugh, 
I'm okay, he coughed. Max got up next. Me too, he groaned. Nice job, Ian, he said with admiration, staring dumbly at the shopping cart. And then before he could stop himself, Max thought, was that the same shopping cart they'd seen the first time they were down here? It was possible. They'd come to the pyramid through an arch in this time, not through the waters of Loch Shiael. And arches connected the pyramid to other times. Therefore, they could now be in a pyramid in a time not their own. Casey helped Max to his feet. Max met her gaze and smiled wanly. And for a moment, things between them seemed back to normal. What happened? Casey asked him quietly. The Baryans showed up, Max answered, started shooting. Domitian? Sasha asked worriedly. Ian shook his head. Don't worry, old Domitian can take care of himself. He hoped he was right. But we ought to hurry up, in case they decide to follow us down here. Max nodded grimly. You're right. But just then he caught motion out of the corner of his eye. A single crow had flown into the arch showing the sugarcane field. It sat on the ground, still staring forward. Oddly, it was as if the crow could see through the arch, and it was watching them right now. Max scowled. Could that be, uh... But Ian was tugging his arm. Okay, ladies first, he said. He jumped up along the wall, a gravity shift holding him in place. No, Sasha said. You two first. Ian was about to protest, but her eyes held him. Ian stepped down again. All right. Your arch is up there, he said, pointing. Number 53. There's a bit of masking tape on it with the number. I numbered all of them a long time ago. Sasha looked up at it. It showed a peaceful beach scene, with waters lapping calmly on a tropical shore. Palm trees swayed happily in the breeze. This was the arch Enki had jumped through, the same one in Ian's video. And then, for just a split second, Sasha thought she saw something that looked like static in the arch that Ian had indicated. But then she shook her head and decided that her eyes were playing tricks on her. Sasha nodded decisively. Got it. Where's yours? Right here, Ian said, pointing again. This arch was much nearer, and with a start, Casey realized she recognized it. It was the arch that showed the Flatiron building at the turn of the century. The same arch they had met Max and Petunia in during the pocket. The same arch that Johnny Siren, her father, had come through, unconscious in a Food Universe shopping cart. Involuntarily, Casey's gaze swept to the shopping cart Max and Ian had just arrived in, laying sideways on the ground. Oh, that arch... Casey whispered. Ian nodded. Yeah, that's where we're going. Sasha grabbed Ian and kissed him. They spoke in whispers to each other. Max turned to Casey. You be careful, he said to her, eyes burning. She nodded and said thickly, You too. She squeezed his hand warmly. Max nodded. And then Ian was at his side again. Let's go, Max said. Ian nodded. With one last glance at Casey and Sasha... Ian and Max stepped through the arch back into 1912. You've been listening to Max Quick, Book 2, The Two Travelers, by Mark Jeffrey, read by the author. Produced by Mark Jeffrey in association with Podiobooks.com. For more information on this patio book, please visit www.maxquickseries.com
the print version of both The Pocket and the Pendant, Max Quick Book 1, and The Two Travelers, Max Quick Book 2, are available at lulu.com in paperback format, PDF format, and hardcover. <laughs>